Turn to the person on your left and tell them the question that if somebody asked you, you would want Jesus to come back with the second coming, the ground to open up and swallow you to get you out of the situation of having to answer that question. Is there a question if somebody asked that in Costa or in a pub, you would want the world to open up? Go. <laughs> your, the question you dread people asking. Thank you very much. So keep those in your mind for a little bit later on this evening. Hopefully, one or two of those might have been answered. But also, over the course of several Tuesdays through the rest of June, are those great evenings of equipping and training that you can come to. Come with questions ready to go. We encourage everybody on these evenings to come. There'll be open questions and answers at the end of every session. So even if it's slightly off topic, it's the only one night that you can go there, fire away, and um, Sharon, Simon, and Judy, and the others are perfectly able to give you a really good answer to all sorts of things. We're not going to be doing open Q&A tonight. We're going to instead be kicking off this series of equipping, if you like, um, by just really thinking, meditating, and unpacking five good reasons to believe in God. And... The kind of springboard for that is 1 Peter 3.15. If you have your Bible, we're going to look at that, 1 Peter 3.13 to 15 and around there. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed even then. Do not fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. But instead, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. An answer is what we're about. A good answer to an important question. People ask us questions at all sorts of times. Sometimes to allow people to generate those questions, I go onto the streets of university campuses and streets all over the UK with enormous 15-foot-high polystyrene question marks covered in red glitter. Because it's I think when somebody's holding a disco glitter question, you don't feel stupid anymore. And it's amazing how that just gets the questions going. And from St. Andrews to Aberystwyth, from Bournemouth to Bath and Bristol, all across the UK, over the course of these last few years, we've been working with my friends and my colleagues, um, helping 
the local Christians answer the questions that their friends have and at the same time answering their own questions that they were looking for an answer to. Sometimes when people begin to realize that there may be somebody there who might answer some of their questions, suddenly they all come pouring out at the wrong time and in slightly inappropriate places. So I was at a party last night with some friends and the Bangra music was going as hard as as you possibly could. And in the middle of it all, somebody's shouting to me through the whole thing about the big questions that are going on in his life at the time. Um, I'm married to Amy, who is infinitely cleverer than I am and I'm infinitely more beautiful. And we were in the middle of um, having our babies. Well, I I wasn't that involved. Um, She was much more engaged in the whole process. And we'd had twins earlier, and um, they're now nine, and it was coming for the birth of now um, who we call Benji. Um, that is his name, that's why we call him Benji. The <laughs> and we were going, and Amy had been going all through the night, 14 hours of labor all the way through the night, and I just kind of checked out on the, um, there was a beanbag in the corner of the maternity suite, and I just had a couple of hours nap in the middle of it all. Came back, and, <laughs> and it, was, it was ready to go, and they said, we're going to have one last push, and then if we can't get this baby out, it's the cesarean. Amy's like, no, I really don't want a cesarean. I had one with the twins. I just want to see if we can make this happen. They said, no, you've got to get into, your, um, in, into the, the gown, ready for this. So they wheel in, and as we're there, legs in stirrups, ready to go for the final push before the cesarean, the last ditched attempt, suddenly, the junior doctor, South African guy, quite dishy, opens a thing. He goes, Amy or Ewing, how do I know that name? <laughs> and in which case, with Amy with her, the thing ready to go, says, are you a Christian, she said. And, and he said, yes, I am. And, um, he's, and, and he said, yes, that's right. Apologetics, you speak and answer people's questions. And he said, he said to her, I've always had this question. <laughs> and at which point I said, this is not the time. <laughs> anyway. I think that probably provoked her into one last push, and Benji was born that day. And over the next couple of days, as Amy was in the hospital, um, that, that South African doctor sent all of the nurses and others to come in and ask their questions at the bedside, and they were reading. And I, I, I brought in 10 copies of Amy's book to answer people's questions. People have questions. We Christians have questions that we were afraid to ask, and, and sometimes we felt there was no answer for them. I remember as a 14-year-old going to speak to my school chaplain and saying, I've got all of these questions. I want to know why there are earthquakes. I want to know why is there suffering in the world. I want to know why there are other religions and why is the Bible more important than the Quran and is it more true or not? And, 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 the, and the chaplain at the time was fished if I know. I was like, he, he's, he had no idea where to go. He couldn't lead me to any books at the time. Just because somebody didn't have a good answer didn't mean my question wasn't good. Many of our friends have really legitimate questions. Many of the questions that we have are good, insightful, legitimate questions. Sometimes we know whether somebody's bright or not, not necessarily because they've got the right answers, but because they're asking the right questions. And we ask many questions. Questions of the soul. How can I find meaning and purpose? Questions of the mind. Questions of the intellect, questions of our emotions. Many things come up in our lives, not just us, but our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our family members. And when we begin to live a life by a different rhythm and a different pattern, 
Sometimes those questions can come up aggressively. How can you believe those things? Are you a bigot? You would think that's an insult, but sometimes it's actually a question. <laughs> how can you live with a different understanding of right and wrong than I can? And how come you are holding on to this view of the world despite the fact that you are just a tiny, tiny percentage or proportion of the entire university campus or the, or, or the whole of your school? I remember being mocked through my biology lessons for believing that there maybe was a God who created the world, being called out in front by my school teacher in front of the whole class, mocking me. Oh, nobody here believes that the world was made by God. Oh, perhaps all Ewing there, he might do, but nobody else intelligent would ever believe that. A couple of my friends sidled up to me and said, it's okay, I believe God made the world as well. Not in front of the teacher, not in any way that would be helpful or, you know, boost my confidence, but just, you know, on the side afterwards, the guy. So we face these questions, and sometimes we're afraid. Sometimes we're afraid that we might not be able to find the answers as people who have a relationship with God and, and are wanting to find answers in the scriptures and, and to find in, in Christ the meaning of life, and sometimes we don't have the answers for our friends, and we want to be able to, and the scriptures here say a number of things. They first of all say, don't be afraid. Now, I love that, because loads of times in the New Testament, people are afraid. If you read the beginning of Luke, every other angel starts off their speech by saying, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, because we basically are wusses at heart. Very few of us are actually heroes. We, we really are not. We're basically lily-livered, have no courage whatsoever. We like to feel courageous, but when push comes to shove, it's just not there, and we find we look for the door. So it says don't be afraid because it assumes, Peter assumes that in every generation, in every context, in every culture, in every situation, no matter what our age or stage or background or intellect or whatever, we are going to face Situations that are tough, sometimes suffering, sometimes they are a loss of reputation. In other parts of the world, it could be a loss of life. In the group of people that Peter was writing to, it could have been the loss of their freedom for giving a reason for the hope that they have. In many parts of the world today, people are facing a threat to their very life and livelihoods because of their Christian faith. And what do we do in England? I live in Gerald's Cross. Gerald's Cross, Guildford, it's the same kind of thing, isn't it, really? Let's face it. And we're worried about what? <laughs> what is really the real cost? And yet we still have this inexplicable fear in us. We do. It's just there. A kind of a reticence at school or at college or at university or, 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 or in our workplaces. A, a fear that's there. And I, and I like the fact that Scripture is not a whole bunch of fluffy bunnies and marshmallows. It's actually real. Don't be afraid, it assumes that we are. So if we feel that sometimes we have anxieties and fears, they're named here. That's our starting point. Okay, fine, okay? None of us are all heroes, we're not all courageous, we're not all filled with all great answers, but don't be afraid. Instead, get prepared. Get prepared. Go into training. Equip and train your mind for action. And always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. When you do, when you give this reason, do it with gentleness and respect. A reason, apologia, a reasoned answer is where that word apologetics comes from. A, a rational, sensible answer to the big questions of life. Do you see within the early church and with every generation of Christians, there's been an assumption that faith and reason are not separate categories. You don't have to take a leap, a holiday from rationality in order to become a Christian and to follow Jesus. 
These are not two separate categories. I think we've done ourselves no favor by talking about a leap of faith. Leaping over what? Over sensibleness. <laughs> Into this other place where nobody needs any reasons for our life and our decision making. Where we mindlessly give a tithe as an act of worship because we are foolish individuals and feel that an invisible God who's out there deserves our praise. No, we have a reason for the hope that we have. It's sensible. It's a faith that seeks understanding and is based on evidence. And tonight, I hope that I'll give you a little sketch out of five good reasons. How many of you have had somebody come to you? Give me just one good reason to be a Christian. Anybody had that? Just one good reason. Okay. Well, how about tonight I give you five? Okay. So when you're next in that conversation, you'd say, well, okay, we can either go for the cosmological. We could go for the ontological or metaphysical answer. I could give you the historical, the personal, or the moral. Any of those five, which one are you most interested? Do you want to see an answer based out of science? Do you want to see an answer based out of the existence of love and truth? Or do you want to see an answer that's based out of my personal experience or of history or the fact that there is right and wrong within the world? There could be an argument from design, an argument from fine-tuning, an argument from desire. There are countless, countless reasons for the hope that we have. Let's just begin to prepare ourselves, prepare our minds for action, prepare that transformation of the mind by doing a little bit of thinking when we come to church. It's all right to use our brains in the presence of God. In fact, it is encouraged. If you ever want to see the screw tape letters, if you've read it, one of the, the senior devils speaks to the junior one and says, whatever you do, make sure they never read. Because as soon as they start to read, they might find out that there are reasons for God. So whatever you do, make sure they never read. I think today they would say, make sure, senior devil speaking to junior devil, make sure they fill their brain with Twitter and X Factor. And then, hopefully, their brains will have completely turned to blamange and they will vote for a trick dog at the end of a national competition then surely we will have won. We will have turned the nation into mindless imbeciles. I'm sure Satan was doing a little loop-the-loop -loop, or maybe a tightrope walk at the end of last week. So we don't need to fear. We have a reason for the hope that we have. There are reasons for believing in God, not an absence from them. We don't have anything to fear from asking questions. We have nothing to fear from asking questions about the Bible, asking questions about Jesus, asking questions about our faith, because there are answers. Ladies and gentlemen, I want us to be excited by the fact that we might not know all the answers yet, but they are there, they are good, they are satisfying, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, morally. They are good answers out there, and we just need to do a tiny bit of digging to find the treasure that has been buried within this book for so long, and we just never knew. A woman accompanied her husband to a doctor's office, and at the checkup, the doctor took the wife aside and said, the doctor said, if you don't do the following, I'm afraid your husband will surely die. You need to do the following things. Firstly, every morning, fix him a healthy breakfast and send him off to work in a good mood. Secondly, at lunchtime, make him a warm, nutritious meal and put him in a good frame of mind before he goes back to work. And thirdly, for dinner, fix an especially nice meal. Don't burden him with household chores. Four, satisfy his every whim in and outside of the bedroom. And then, on the way home, the husband said to the wife, what did the doctor say? I'm afraid you're going to die, darling, she informed him. <laughs> Do 
We don't have anything to fear from examining Christ and taking a closer look at him. If only on the basis that he is the most towering figure of world history. And 2,000 years after he died, one person out of 60 billion in the globe today has stood out beyond any other human being, even if he were not also the son of God. Surely he would deserve a second look. H.G. Wells calls Jesus the most dominant person in human history. The Yale historian uh, Yaroslav Pelikan said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of a super magnet to pull out of history every single scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much of human history would be left? The world's chronology is linked to his birth, A.D., B.C. He never wrote a book, and yet around him, more books have been written than anyone else or anything else. One film based on his recorded works has been translated into a hundred languages, the Jesus film, and more people have seen that film than any other film in history. The book, the Bible and the Gospels, which contains eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and death, is the most successful literary creation ever produced, more influential than Shakespeare or any other great texts. It's completely international. Homer translated to 40 languages, Shakespeare into about 60, the Bible into several hundred, over 2,000 languages that have the Bible, 10 times more than any other book. It's every publisher's dream. It's the world's bestseller, taken out of the bestseller lists because it would dominate every single time. There's never been fewer in recent years than 44 million copies of the Bible printed and sold. Except for one brief period in his history, in his childhood, Jesus never traveled outside of his own small country. And yet his followers are found in every single tribe, nation, and language and country of the world. He had no formal education, but there are thousands of universities and colleges and schools founded in his name. He has exerted more influence on humankind than any other individual. Napoleon Bonaparte said, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I, you can see how humble Napoleon Bonaparte was, we all founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. But Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this day, and this hour, millions of people would die for him. Astounding words from that ruthlessly brilliant world leader. He is the most controversial person in world history. Nobody has attracted any more devotion or criticism than him. Millions of people today, including ourselves, are looking to apply his words personally. Truth matters, and the truth about Christ matters. He is this towering figure of history and culture and philosophy and psychology. Truth matters, and Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is described as full of grace and truth. Truth about Christianity is not something that should make us feel uncomfortable, although the truth can sometimes be uncomfortable. Lawyers once asked a Mississippi grandma a question, and they didn't expect 
this answer. In a trial in a southern small town, a prosecuting lawyer called his first witness and up came a grandmotherly elderly woman to the stand. And he approached her and he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? And she said, why, yes, I know you, Mr. Williams. I have known you since you were a boy and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife and you manipulate people and you talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot, but you haven't the brains to realize that you will never amount to anything but a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned, not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the room and he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense lawyer? And she again replied, why, yes, I do. I have known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster. He is lazy and bigoted and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anybody, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention, he cheated on his wife and three other women, and one of them was your wife. <laughs> yes, I know him. The defense lawyer, Mr. Bradley, nearly died. At this point, the judge asked both lawyers to approach the bench and said in a quiet voice, if either of you two idiots asks her if she knows me, I will send you both the electric chair. <laughs> Truth matters. Truth matters. When we think of truth in the abstract terms, it seems less important to be certain. One plus one equals two. How important is that? Is it true that a government minister swore at a police officer at the Downing Street gate? But in the personal realm, things start to get more highly charged. Is it true that your girlfriend cheated on you last night? Is it true the person I thought was my father was actually my father? These are not matters to be approached with a shrug of a shoulder. And a breezy, everyone's perspective is equally true. Is it true that your contract and your salary check is a real communication? Do you really have money in your bank? Is it true or is it not important whether words are true or whether there's truth in the world? No, it is important. And the more it gets personal to ourselves, the more we realize how important truth is. So what might some of these answers be? The first then will be cosmological. We believe in God because of the cosmos, the existence of the universe. The good news of Jesus Christ is grounded in cosmology. Without God, there is no first mover. There is no ground for rationality. There is no reason to have the intricate makeup of the universe that we once have. Einstein said, everyone who is seriously engaged in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that the laws of nature manifest the existence of a spirit vastly superior to that of men and in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. That's Einstein. If we're peering into these things, we realize that there is a spirit far superior than any of our puny minds. If Einstein recognized the rationality, the reasonableness of a God within the cosmos, then so too can we. The man called Anthony Flew, one of the most prominent atheist philosophers of our generation, who lay behind and convinced writers such as Gray and also Richard Dawkins. He wrote a paper arguing for God's non-existence called Theology and Falsification, which you'll, see, you'll still see quoted many times. It's one of the most widely reprinted philosophical publications of the last 50 years. Many people in the new atheist movement are heavily dependent upon that one philosophical article. But in 2007, he wrote a book called There Is a God. And he cites Paul Davis. He says, arguably the most influential contemporary expositor of modern science. He writes this, atheists claim that the laws of nature exist 
reasonlessly. (laughs) And that the universe is ultimately absurd. But as a scientist, I find that hard to accept. There must be an unchanging rational ground in which the logical, orderly nature of the universe is rooted. Anthony Flew, God and falsification, then he says, no, there is a God. There has to be a rational grounding in order for us to find a reasonable universe. Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. It allowed us for the first time to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Soon after, in the philosophy of science, came Alexander Friedman and Georges Lemaitre, each working on Einstein's equations. They began to predict that the universe that we see is actually expanding. And then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. And this empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang forth from a single point and a finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. Up until that stage, many people had felt that the universe was eternal, was multiple, and he said, no, there's something. There is a finite, fixed beginning and a past. It tends to be very awkward for many atheist thinkers. As Anthony Kenny of Oxford University says, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came by nothing and from nothing. That's a very hard pill for many people to swallow. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist? Where did it come from? These are questions that everybody has to answer. There must have been a cause that brought this universe into being. From the very nature of the case, this cause itself must be uncaused, changeless, timeless, an immaterial being which created the universe. Data came before matter. Is it incredible that the Big Bang Theory actually confirms what the Christian theist has always believed? In the beginning, God created the world. A magician needed a break from stressful city living, and he so took a job on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. The pay was average, but the perks were good, and the audience would be different every week. He thought it was going to be safe to um, have the luxury of repeating the same tricks every week. However, over time, a small problem developed. The captain's parrot was also there and saw the shows each week. He began to understand what the magician was doing with each trick. Was he, for example, cutting open a lemon and putting notes inside it? (laughs) He began to call out during the show, Look, it's the same hat! Or, He's hiding the flowers under the table! Or, Why are all the cards the ace of spades? Now, the magician got furious, filled with hatred for this wretched little parrot. But of course, he couldn't do anything. It was kind of protected and under the watch of the captain. And he didn't want to get thrown off the boat and lose his cushy Caribbean tour. But one day, the ship the magician was working in ran into trouble and it sank. As it happened, the magician found himself sharing the same plank of wood floating in the Caribbean Sea with the parrot. They stared at each other, filled with hatred but neither uttered a word for several days. And finally, the parrot broke the silence. Okay, I give up. Where's the boat? (laughs) (laughs) So I've got to put this question to us. Which is more plausible? 
Now, the Christian theist is right, that there is a reason to believe that we have a universe at all, that there is an unmoved first mover, an uncaused first cause, a powerful, intelligent being that caused the universe to be made with the pattern and the shape and the existence that it now has, who created power so that power could, could flow through the universe, or it popped into existence, uncaused, out of nothing. I personally don't have any trouble assessing which of those is the most reasonable and rational explanation of what we find in the universe and the world today. And why should we even believe that the universe is intelligible and understandable? After all, if a certain secular thinkers tell us the human mind is nothing but the brain, and the brain is nothing but the product of mindless, unguided forces, it's hard to see that any kind of truth, let alone scientific truth, could be one of the products of this brain. As the chemist J.B.S. Haldane points out long ago, if the thoughts in my minds are just the motions of the atoms in my brain, why should I believe anything that my mind tells me, including the fact that it is made of atoms? Yet many scientists have adopted this naturalistic view, seemingly unaware that it undermines the very rationality upon which their scientific research depends. It was not, and it is not always so. Science as we know it exploded into the world stage in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Why then and why there? C.S. Lewis sums it up like this. Men became scientific because they expected to see law in nature. They expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. It is no accident that Galileo and Kepler and Newton and Clark Maxwell were all believers in God. Calvin, the Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry, says the origin of conviction basic to science that nature is ordered, comes from the idea that the universe is guided and governed by a single God. It is not the product and the whims of many gods, each governing his own province according to his own laws. This monotheistic view is the historical foundation for modern science. No other worldview produced modern science, only the Christian worldview produced it. Far from belief in God hindering science, it was the motor that drove it. Isaac Newton, when he discovered the law of gravity, he didn't make the common mistake of saying, now that I've got the law of gravity, I don't need God. Instead, he wrote the Principia Mathematica, the most famous book in the history of science, expressing the hope that once you've discovered the law of gravity, you would realize that the thinking man would see that there is a God who has created that universe. The thinking man would believe in a creator because of the existence of such a force as gravity. Newton could see what sadly many people nowadays seem unable to see, that God and science are not alternative explanations. God is the agent who designed and upholds the universe. Science tells us about how the universe works and about the laws that govern its behavior. God no more conflicts with science as an explanation for the universe than Sir Frank Whittle conflicts with the laws and uh, mechanisms of jet propulsion as an explanation of the jet engine. The existence of mechanisms and laws is not an argument for the absence of an agent who made those laws and put that mathematics in place. On the contrary, it's their very sophistication, the very fine-tuning of this universe, the very complexity of it is evidence for the creator's genius. 
The chief aim, says Kepler, of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order that has been imposed upon it by God, which is then revealed to us by the pursuit of mathematics and the language of mathematics. Francis Collins, who came up with a human genome project, finds himself delighting in worship because of the complexity of the human DNA. Let's say I was to go for a little walk on the beach. And as I strolled upon the beach, I would find, written in giant letters in the sand, F-R-O-G. I would say, great. But I would also have another thought. Somebody incredibly intelligent must have put those letters into the sand. The letters don't get there on their own. They get there because a designer, an intelligent designer, has put those letters in that order to create something that has meaning. If that's true of us stumbling across three or four letters on the sand on a beach, that we come to the conclusion there must be something behind to have put those things in that order. How much more amazing then is the three billion pieces of information in the same order that make up one strand of DNA? And that's why Francis Collins the leader of the Human Genome Project, is able to be filled with awe and wonder and worship. It only makes sense to him because of the creative genius of the creator. We are awestruck when we see the complexity of the universe because of the wisdom and the complexity of the designer. I love paintings. I love painting. I did loads of um, painting um, all the way through the years, exhibitions. I love uh, visionary landscapes. I love Turner, I love Chagall. I can spot a Chagall handiwork. I can, I can see a singer-sergeant as opposed to, the, to somebody else. I can, after a while, you begin to see the complexity. You don't even need to see the autograph in the bottom to know the style of the artist, to see that that's a Turner, to see that that's Van Gogh with his bright colors. We see the wisdom and the artistry of the artist by looking at their created order. So too, the infinite complexity and the beauty of the universe that we are part of, that seems to be beautiful for no apparent reason, points us to the great artist, the great creator. On my way here, as I was driving on the side of the motorway, the entire verge is filled with incredible, huge ox-high daisies. Have you seen them going out recently? Why? The sheer, extravagant, unnecessary beauty of the universe. Bluebells come up in a field inside a forest and a wood. Even if nobody gets to look at them, they still go beautiful. They're still there. The sheer beauty and our capacity to appreciate beauty. Again, why? Because we have a creator God that is imprinted within us. A capacity to appreciate beauty. So that we can have our minds and our spirits lifted towards worship of our creator. Science doesn't contradict God. In fact, it is rested. It is the engine God is the engine for science and discovery. Or morality, or truth. The very laws of science, not cosmology, but ontology or metaphysics, life, truth, these things that exist within our known and felt experiences, you can't necessarily put them in a test tube, but you cannot deny that they are there. Human thought itself cannot be fully explained in naturalistic terms. The mere existence of thought itself convinces me that there is a great thinker. The mere capacity for thought is a piece of evidence. It's one of the reasons I believe 
in the creator, the metaphysics. And thirdly, what about morality? That there are some things that are right and wrong. Why are some things right and some things wrong? Objective moral values exist within the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. In fact, many atheist philosophers agree with us. Richard Dawkins, if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies would be what we would expect. With meaningless good fortune, a universe will be neither good or evil in its intention. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people will get lucky, and you will find no rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. He says the universe we observe is precisely the properties we would expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor, neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. Atheist philosopher asked this question, what is the difference between putting two sugars in my granny's tea or strychnine? Is one of those evil and one of those good? How can you decide between those two things? Well, either there is such a thing as morality and right and wrong, or, as Bertrand Russell would suggest, it's just a matter of, pr of personal preference. It's like the difference between uh, um, green and blue is the only difference between personal preference between good and, uh, good and evil. But in which case, some people like, choose to love their enemies, other people choose to eat them. Which, is, which preference is, is, is better? Can something be evil or good? Other people say, no, it's a social construct. Communities create their own morality. But what about creating your own morality within, within the German, within the Russian gulags or during the Holocaust? Just because something is legal, it doesn't mean it is good. A social construct, a socially constructed morality doesn't work. A group gets together. Some things just are evil. Some things just are good. The abuse of children, the crushing of the poor, the murder of the innocents, these things are absolute. If atheism is true, there is no moral accountability for one's actions. All life ends at the grave. There's no difference whether one lives or dies, like Stalin or a saint. As the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky said, if there is no immortality, then all things are permitted. The state torturers in Soviet prisons understood all of this far too well. Richard Vermbrandt, speaking from Romania during the Ceausescu regime, says this, the cruelty of atheism in our regime was hard to believe that man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There's no reason to be human. There's no restraint from the depths of evil that is in man. The communist torturers often said, there is no God, there is no hereafter, there is no punishment for evil. We can do whatever we want. I've heard one torturer say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived in this hour so I can express all the evil within my heart. He expressed it to me in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on us and many prisoners. There is a dark side to human existence that we see all around us in the selfishness and suffering of this world. We can try to deny the reality of this darkness, but it is inescapably there. Three pastors got together for a pastor's fraternal. I've been in some of these. They sit round for a time of mutual edification and occasionally for confession. One of them got together and said, brothers, it has come to that time. I'm asking for your prayer. I have a real problem. I uncontrollably go out and gamble the whole of my, all of my money. And they said, brother, we'll pray for you. Thank you for confessing your sins. The second one said, well, I'm glad that we've started this whole confession thing. Well, my real problem is that, that I get blind drunk every Friday and Saturday night. And um, I've got a real problem here with binge drinking. And I'm confessing it to you now. And they said, brother, we'll pray for you. We'll see what we can do to put a structure in place to help you through this. 
And the third one said, well, it's neither gambling nor alcohol. My real problem is gossip. I cannot wait to get out of it. <laughs> There's a reality of, human, of humanity that within our hearts, there is a line. We want to have everybody evil out there, but the truth is that human evil and morality cuts through every soul. We have this struggle between good and evil as Solzhenitsyn said, if there were only evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human being. The message of the Bible isn't just a diagnosis of this problem of morality, it's also the solution in Christ. The solution to the human heart is the solution of Jesus Christ. He is God come down to us in human history, revealing what God is like and sacrificing himself for us. To pay the debt that we owe, Jesus dies in our place and offers his life instead of ours. We don't have to pay for what we've done or live in bondage to it anymore. He's come to set us free. But the fact that remains that whether we believe in Jesus or not, we can still see that objective morals do exist. Some things really are wrong in a way that transcends personal preference or social contract. Murder, rape, exploitation of children, violence against women in the home, these things are actually wrong. In some cultures, they may be acceptable. Some re regimes have made mass murder legal, even in Europe in the last century, but they are still wrong. It only makes sense if there is what philosophers call an ontic reference point beyond morality. There is a fixed point that makes some things right and wrong, a source of morality transcending us, transcending us in our society. If God does not exist, moral values do not exist in any real sense. But if moral values exist, then there is a God who has placed them within the universe. If there is such a thing as right and wrong, then there is a God. Fourthly, historical. We've looked at metaphys cosmological, metaphysical, moral, and then historical. The historical facts concerning the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ all point to the existence of God. The Bible makes extraordinary claims which should be investigated. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The claim here is about revelation. It's not us in our human minds making up a way of doing good things to find fulfillment in life. This is a divine initiative, God revealing himself to us. Now the thing about revelation is that it is received, it is perceivable. It is a communication possible of being experienced. A little girl was six years old doing a school project on birth. She went to her mummy and she said, mummy, how were we born? Embarrassed, not ready to have that conversation, she said, a stork brought you, darling. How? Oh. Well, then, how was Granny born? Well, um, as she was getting herself in a bit of a fix, she said, well, darling, a stork brought her. That's how it is with our family. And the little girl went back to school, wrote in her project that there hasn't been a natural birth in our family for three generations. <laughs> Christ made astounding claims, but they can be investigated. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Crucial, historical piece of evidence. It's a historical piece of evidence that all Christians in every generation and culture have based an aspect of their faith. Paul said, I should be pitied more than most if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I am happy for this to be open to scrutiny. Christians in every generation and culture and background have always said, look at the evidence. Jesus rose from the dead. It is the only reasonable and rational explanation for what 
scientists and historians and legal experts can see here. Three historical facts remain concerning the resurrection. One, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, the tomb was found empty. Two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Multiple individuals, one at a time, sometimes a crowd of 500 people. And three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection, despite having a predisposition to being wusses and, a dis- <laughs> to the, and having that disposition to the contrary. There is no plausible, natural explanation for these events, apart from that Jesus himself rose from the dead. Miracles, some would say, are impossible. They violate the laws of nature. Not necessarily. If on two nights I have two pound, 10 pound notes in my drawer, the laws of arithmetic tell me I have 20 pounds. If, however, the next day I wake up and I find only five pounds in the drawer, I conclude not that the laws of arithmetic have been broken, but the laws of England. The laws of nature describe to us the regularities which the universe regularly runs. God who created the universe with those laws in it is not a prisoner to those laws just like a thief is not a prisoner to the laws of arithmetic. Like my room, the universe is not a closed system, as a secularist maintains. God can, if he wills, do something special, like raise Jesus from the dead. Note that it is my knowledge of the laws of arithmetic that can tell me that a thief has stolen the money. Similarly, if we did not know the laws of nature, we wouldn't know that a miracle had occurred. We wouldn't know that the resurrection of Jesus was this one-time event. Was it, in fact a hinge event upon which history should be counted. We needed to understand the laws of nature to recognize when the miracle had occurred that was changing and showing us that God had intervened within our society and our history and our logic, that this really was an event that needed to reorientate our thinking about the world. In fact, those who investigate the evidence for the resurrection come to the conclusion that Jesus really was raised from the dead, like C.S. Lewis himself, who said, When he was alone in his room at night, he found himself the most dejected convert in all of Christendom. He didn't want there to be a God, but as he looked into the evidence, he came to the inescapable conclusion that God really was. Our liking or disliking of the idea of God doesn't make God either real or not real. And this is why C.S. Lewis was able to confront people like Freud. Many people will say, you are just a believer in God because you have a psychological need for a father figure. God is just a psychological projection of your need for a father figure or your need for a God, and therefore you have posited a God as a fulfillment of your desire for there to be a God figure. The problem is, if you turn that argument back around, you could say to somebody, well, it seems to me by that reason, the only reason you don't believe in God is because you have a psychological need for a projection for there not to be a God. So our psychological projections one way or other is actually irrelevant. It's not an argument one way or other. The question is, is there a God? Not do I want there to be a God, or would I feel like there ought to be a God, but is there a God? Does God exist? Historical evidence. And evidence for the resurrection, for the historicity of Christ, for his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection is a piece of evidence which I find utterly, utterly compelling. And fifthly, in the final piece of evidence, this reason for God, and I'm sorry to keep you but hopefully you will find this useful as you go out into Guildford over these next few weeks, is a personal experience. A personal God begins a personal relationship with persons like you or I like I. I have a personal relationship with God. I met him formally 
in a way that I can really think about as a 14-year-old. I think of ways in which I was praying to him all the way through my childhood, even as a six or seven-year-old. I was praying. I was, I was in relationship with this God. I've come to know him more over the years. I've found my personal relationship to, with God to be deeply satisfying. I have seen miracles. I have seen answered prayers. The only explanation, rational explanation for, for the events before and after was this moment of prayer that happened. I've seen that happen in my life so many times, which is why Peter says, always be ready for the reason, for the hope that you have. I get enormous, enormous benefits from my personal relationship with Christ, and it is not a psychological projection. It is not me presenting. I am able to say to people if they ask me, I was chatting to God this morning. We have a personal relationship. He lives by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that is real and tangible. Now, you may not like the fact that I'm saying this. You may think that I'm deluded, but it is a piece of evidence that needs to be put in to your understanding of the world. If somebody tells me that, that they believe in God, this is a piece of evidence, that personal encounter, the personal experience of God. Now, it doesn't necessarily matter which evidence was persuasive to you as you were growing up or has been persuasive to you now, all of these reasons for God are good reasons. Some of them we find personally resonate with us more, just partly because the way that we're wired, the things that, that make sense to us. Some of us are looking for emotional and, and psychological answers. Some of us are looking for answers such as suffering. Sometimes it's academic, sometimes it's intellectual. But we all have these answers. As we go out into our workplaces and our colleges and our universities this week and somebody says to you, give me one good reason for believing in God. Perhaps you can say, well, the existence of the universe, the cosmos, the existence of truth and thought itself points to the fact of a metaphysical reality, a divine, um, divine intelligence within the universe, the DNA strands. Perhaps you could say the historical evidence. Perhaps you could say the mere existence there is such a thing as right and wrong. Or perhaps you could say my personal relationship with God persuades me. Or perhaps it's all of those things and many others. I pray that during the course of this week you will feel equipped and prepared more than you have done before tonight. Amen.